with open arms and we're really grateful for her. They have, together they have four children, including two newcomer attendees, Leah and Sophia. So welcome, Michael. We're really glad to have you this morning. Thanks for being here. All right, Daniel's helping me out. Great. Good morning to you. I, uh, first service, I was all dapper. I had a fancy coat on, and I was looking good, but it's too hot. So here I am, sleeves folded up, ready to work. You know, uh, a year and a half ago, I took a trip to China, and I was there to meet Christian parents. Uh, they were in sort of these underground Christian schools. And because of my role at North Park, we were there to recruit their children to come be students for us. So we'd go town after town, city after city, make these presentations about North Park and about Chicago, and uh, then we'd open it up for questions. And of course, you know, we're doing this translating in between, right? So the first question, every time, no matter where we were, which city we were in, was this. Uh, since North Park's in Chicago, is it safe? And what about all the crime in Chicago? So here I am on the other side of the world, and the first thing they want to know is about the crime in Chicago. You know, for all the great things about our city, we do know we have problems, and crime is certainly one of them. If you've been following, following the news this past week, you've seen uh, that we've got some substantial problems in our Chicago public schools. Even this morning, I had a big article about sexual predators uh, that have seemingly gotten away with preying on students. This is not to mention all the other challenges and the inequalities between our schools. Of course, Chicago has always been known as a city of political graft where you have to pay to get things done, uh, a place of massive inequalities in its neighborhoods and between its people, a place obviously of crime, but also a place well known for being very racially segregated, economically segregated, vast food deserts. Okay, I could go on, but you, you understand there are some issues. But what if I told you it doesn't have to be this way? And not only that, but that God actually calls us to change this. And what if I told you that God not only calls us to change this, but that Christ gives us the power to change it. If we will access it, we have the power to do so. And what if I told you that it's, whether you know it or not, it's not by chance that you are here at New Community, a place that is about being and doing and changing our city. And I don't mean in some vague, abstract way to change our city. I mean literally to change our city. So I want in our brief time together to talk about biblically what does God say the city ought to be? And then, what is the city actually? What are the possibilities? And how can we go about engaging and building in God's kingdom in the city? So let's start by looking at something that uh, we know well, if you've been coming here for a while, and that is our church. We're two actual congregations, right? The one here and then the one in Bronzeville on the south side. Go to our website. Top line says that we are one church serving multiple communities for what? for the good of the whole city. And then, of course, every week we say the mission statement as we just did this morning. I think the mission statement, when we say it every week, sometimes we cannot think about what we're saying, right? We seek to be a city within a city in alternate Chicago. That's our goal. And it has three components to it. Where we passionately love Jesus Christ, where we intentionally engage in authentic community, and where we advance the cause of Jesus. Now, if you go to Genesis 1, to give us, it gives us the human job description. What it is we're supposed to do with our time on earth. 
And we're, it says we're to collectively rule over all living things. We're to be responsible for God, for God, before God, for life on earth. Apart from God, of course, these things quickly go awry. So even if I say the word rule over, you may think, ooh, that sounds harsh. But that's, of course, because we twisted what rule means to mean something like subjugate or dominate. But, of course, that's not what we're invited to do. We're invited to be part of God's kingdom. God's kingdom is his reign and rule over all of creation. By the death and resurrection of Christ, then he came to advance this process and invite us to be part of this project. So, if you go to our website once again, you'll see Pastor Peter there giving an intro video for about three minutes talking about our uh, uh, mission statement. And he says... Ultimately, the Bible says we are to be about two things, saving souls and restoring the entire world into right relationship. Okay, so let's quickly look at the three components of our mission statement here. We start with Christ as fundamental. It would be impossible to do what we're called to do, of course, if we are not giving ourselves completely and wholly to Christ. If we're not saying, you are my Lord, you are the one who reigns, and I shall give up some of my rights to follow you. Uh, I mentioned in the first service that I read of a man who's actually a missionary in India. But for basically all his life, since he became a Christian, he's been saying the word Jesus in his mind once a minute. So I thought, well, that seems impossible. How would you do that? So the last couple of weeks, I've tried that. And at first, it's really weird and really hard. But I noticed that sometimes when I had a temptation, I'd say the word Jesus, and the temptation would go away. So uh, it's actually become part of what I'm doing. And I'd encourage you to give it a try. Just, it becomes very natural to do it. Community is uh, important. We talk about this all the time here. A community that what? That embodies what it is that Christ's kingdom is supposed to be. Ultimately, that we are fulfilling the mission of Christ, even if it's a smaller subset. That's why we say a city within a city. An alternate Chicago. But then the cause. Why do we do this? We don't create community just for ourselves, but for the restoration of all things, to build the kingdom. So therefore, we create community, but then God draws us out with our community into the streets. And we're to make the city a better place. We're to make the city a transformed place where Christ reigns and rules. So, how would we do that? What would we do? How would we build a kingdom of Christ in Chicago, this alternate Chicago? Well, of course, I think we'd be wise to turn to the Bible to see what we might learn. So let's see what God has to say about cities in the Bible. And I'll just start by saying this. Do you know that the, in the Bible, the word city is written more than the word Jesus? I think that's interesting. Let's see maybe why. So first of all, the important point is this. We t come to see in the Bible that God created cities. God created cities for a very specific goal, we'll see. So the great patriarchs had this goal. It says in Hebrews 11.10 that Abraham was confidently looking forward to a city with eternal foundations, a city designed and built by God. God builds cities. Revelation 21 and 22, the very last two chapters of the Bible, what are they about? Well, it says that when God finally gets done with all the work and the restoration that he's doing in the world, that final work is a city. It's called New Jerusalem, and it says it will descend from heaven, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. It has lots of details about this city. 
By the way, it's going to be really big. It's 1,400 miles wide and 1,400 miles long. It talks about the kinds of streets in the city. It talks about the diversity in the city, the center square of the city, the, uh, what it's made of. It talks about the fact that there's a river, like the Chicago River, that runs right through it. There's actually trees growing along this river. It's always light. No more pain, no more suffering. It talks about the healing of the nations. It contains at its center a throne for God. And it says Jesus lives downtown. Pretty cool place to live. And that's how the Bible ends. Boom. So think about it. All of the inhabitants of, this, of heaven are going to be urbanites. That's kind of hard for my wife and I. We grew up in a little town. And my wife, seven miles out of our little town in the, in the country. But this is what God says. So we go from this redemption and restoration project where we start in a rural garden and we end up in God's city. Now, why did God invent a city? What's the city? Why is it so important? Let's look at three reasons that the Bible talks about. So first, that the city releases our greatest potential. As humans, the city releases our greatest potential. God knows this indeed. So God, who is creative, God is the creator, and we are made in God's image. That means we have this innate desire to ourselves want to create, to build, to innovate, to cultivate, to improve. And it's in cities where we can unleash this most powerfully. Now, why? Let me just give you an example. So when I was writing this sermon, I thought, okay, I could go into my room at home and write it. I could go to my office, shut the door and write it. But what I actually did was I got on a train, I rode to a coffee shop, I went to the coffee shop, and I sat there all day and worked on it. Why? There's something about just having people around that enhances the creative process. I'm a sociologist, and in my field, we actually call this the subcultural theory of urbanism. The subcultural theory of urbanism, fancy title that says, human beings are more creative when you take a diversity of people and subcultures and put them together. And cities are our very best invention for taking a diversity of subcultures and people and putting them in close spaces together. They bump into each other, and that bumping in of differences creates new innovation. And we can actually see this. 98% of all patents in the world come from cities, and the bigger the cities, the higher the rate of patents. You can go on and on. Well, God knew this. This is why he designed cities. We see, for example, that the first mention of music in Genesis is in a city. We also see that the that the arts, manufacturing, craftsmanship, science, architecture are flourishing in cities. This is in Genesis. This is so far back, and yet it's talking about cities. Now, of course, it doesn't matter if we personally live in a city. Cities impact us all. If you think about uh, where, where is music made? Where are the centers of music? How about where movies are made? Where are the centers of fashion? Always they're in cities, usually big cities. And these cities, whatever they're producing and creating, flow out to the rest of the world. So there's a downside to this, of course. Cities also produce false idols and, and false worldviews that flow out to the rest of the world. So they are exporters of sin. They can distort our need to create into our need to achieve at nearly any cost. Let's look at Genesis 11, where we'll see an example of this. It says, then they, then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. So they're doing what God created us to do. Right? 
they're saying, let's build a city, let's build a tower, we're creating, but then it becomes twisted, the motivation, not for the glory of God, but for ourselves, so that we'll stand out among the other peoples of the earth. This is our constant challenge, isn't it? That this, this drive for self-glorification. We always want to get a little bit better grades than others, or uh, gain status with our cool job, or talk about the cool neighborhood or place we live, or maybe about the exotic places we visited. Always it's this drive to be just a little bit better than others. Now, this drive might come because we're trying to please our parents, or we're trying to gain some measure of self-worth, or maybe we're trying to prove someone wrong. They said they can't do it, so I'm going to show them I can. It might be because we're looking for security or status, but what it's not doing is what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be about glorifying God. Second reason that God created cities is that cities are a place of refuge. A place of refuge. Psalm 107 says, Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. How did he do that? He led them by a straight way to a city where they could settle. You know, if you look at the Hebrew words in the Old Testament for city, always it communicates a sense of protection, of, of, of safety, of refuge. That's what a city is to be. And God specifically instructed Israelites to build cities for that purpose. So if you are accused of a crime, instead of being hunted down and killed, a city is supposed to provide a place where you can actually have a fair trial. Cities then are supposed to be places of biblical justice. Cities, of course, remain places to be places of refuge. Um, if you're single, a lot of times you feel more comfortable in cities. If you have purple hair, and then I gave this example, and I realized um, Bethany singing here has her hair dyed purple. If you have purple hair, you'll feel less alone in a city because you'll find other people that do like to dye their hair purple. Okay? The point is that we see something very important in how we're created. Whether we're introvert or extrovert, we're created to be social creatures. Our health actually relies on having interactions. You know, if you notice the, a couple of high-profile suicides this week, um, in both cases, the sense of isolation. And uh, I was reading about people that specialize in studying suicide, and why do people get to that point? They said it's a four-step process, and the key step is when they believe they are no longer connected or worthy to be connected to others. So sin can distort this, uh, this, this view or desire to be with others and to be accepted as well. So cities become also places where you can come for sin, vice as we used to call it. Uh, cities might teach you, go ahead and pursue your own glory. Go ahead and pursue it. In fact, go ahead and um, that's what you should be spending your time doing. Obviously twisted, but highly accepted in, in our modern culture. That cities can be places for sin as well, I think is illustrated with, I told you that music began in Genesis. Here's the first lyrics ever written to music. In a city now. I, I can't sing, so I'll just say them. What are these beautiful lyrics emanating from the city for the first time? I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. Catchy tune. If you put a catchy tune to that, could be a hit. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. Anyway. So cities are, of course, everything. Now, this leads to the third and final reason why God created cities, and that is an important one, the most important one, really, that city, cities compel us to spiritual searching. Compel us to spiritual searching. Now, why would that be? 
If you think about it, most every ancient city named itself after its god or after some aspect of its god. In nearly every ancient city, the tallest building in that city would be the temple, the place where they worship the city's god. So cities, amidst all the variety and the diversity and the churning and the striving, they create spiritual turmoil. They actually put us on a path to seek something. So people are always spiritually searching in cities, even if we think they're not. You can say, this can't be true. Cities are fairly secular places. In my own field, that's what we thought. And so the assumption, never tested, of course, is that more people go to church in small towns and rural areas than would in cities. When we tested it, we found it was the exact opposite. And we keep testing it because we don't believe it. It can't be true. More people go to church in cities than in rural areas. This idea of spiritual searching. People are looking for something. This is how God has created it. Just an example uh, of how our city reflects some of the things I've said. You know, the tallest building in Chicago, I looked it up, 1850s and 1860s, way back when. It was a church, the Holy Name Cathedral. Okay, then we had the big fire, everything burned down, and they rebuilt. And what was the tallest building then? It was a church, the Holy Family Church. If you jump ahead into the 1920s, the tallest building in the city was a church called the Chicago Temple, still in the downtown area. But then something changed. Apparently, Chicago got a new god in 1930 when the tallest building became the Chicago Board of Trade. And ever since, we have celebrated our new god, god of commerce, the god of economics, profit, the market, with our buildings. So there's a reason, then, that we say here that we at Newcom seek to create an alternative Chicago, one that is placing Christ above the market, one that says people are more important than profit, one that says we will serve others ahead of serving ourselves. That's the alternate Chicago we're seeking. Of course, the beauty is that God has designed this the place, cities, the place to be able to share his message. If you look at the early missionaries when the Christian church just started, at that time, 3% of the world was urban, lived in cities. 3%. But if you look at where they went, Paul, for example, they only went to one place. Every single time they went to a city. So they're only going to 3% of the people because they knew this is where change happens. They knew this is where people would be open to this new Christian message. And also, if they were to accept it in the cities, it would flow out to the other 97% of people. Okay, uh, if uh, old preachers would say, the only way to do true ministry in this world is you've got to hold the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. And you've got to be able to combine that knowledge of what's happening with the knowledge of what is supposed to be. Again, if we put that in more modern terms, you've got to be able to hold the Bible app in one hand and have an online subscription to the Chicago Tribune. So we're going to try to do that right now. And um, I'm going to do it by talking about a book that my colleague and I just had come out because we're arguing in this book that there's actually two kinds of cities emerging in the world, this modern world now, uh, what we call market cities and people cities. And um, if you're interested, there's four free copies in the back if you want them after. Okay, what do we argue here? That these kinds of cities are so different that they produce fundamentally different realities for people and how you will experience your life. That they exist for very different reasons. 
And so we want to use it to see if we can learn any lessons for what it is we ought to be doing to create God's kingdom here in Chicago. All right, so because I'm going to use a lot of—well, we'll wait just a moment, right? We'll go to the next slide. All right, so in this idea of market cities and people cities, we're saying that cities ultimately, because we're finite, have to decide a priorities rubric. What do they ultimately make a decision on? If you have $10, how will you spend it? They're always going to have to make those decisions. So markets, market cities make one set of choices. People cities make another set of choices. If you go to the next slide, here's how they think. If you ask a market city why does it exist, it says, they will say we exist to create a strong economy, produce jobs, lure competition, lure companies, I mean, spur startups, be business friendly. If you do that, if you have a really healthy economy, then everything else takes care of itself. I just saw the brand new 2018, um, they have a mayor summit where all the mayors of the country get together, and the number one uh, focus for all of them by far was strong economy. So market cities, market cities across most of the nation. People cities, very different way of thinking. Why does a city exist? To have a high quality of life for the people and equality between its citizens. A place that is healthy, lively, safe, and sustainable. Uh, we're going to go through an example here. I'm going to compare Chicago and Copenhagen, Denmark. We're going to do it through a series of slides. Let me first say uh, on this larger topic, if you go to the next slide, I know you can't see all of that. The point is to understand this. Everything in cities are interrelated. So you don't have social inequality on one hand and then crime levels on another. Turns out the more social inequality you have, the more crime you have. They always go together. Okay? And we can do this for a whole series. I put a few up there and how they differ. But you get a whole bundle of things that describe a market city and a whole bundle of things that describe a people city. Market cities, one of the results of focusing on the economy is they have higher inequality. And they do have higher crime compared to people cities. So let's just keep that in mind. We'll come back to that. How do you know if a city's a market city or a people city? There's many ways, but one way in the next slide is simply to go to the website and see what they say they're about. Chicago says that they're about economic development and jobs is their top two priorities. And Copenhagen says their top two priorities are to invest in all citizens' quality of life and to create a Copenhagen that will be socially equal across people, across neighborhoods. This gets reflected some in how money is spent, but also how much money is spent. Next slide, we compare how much money per person is spent by the government of Chicago and Copenhagen. In Copenhagen, about $13,000 per resident per year. In Chicago, about $3,700. So about three and a half times more per person in Copenhagen. Of course, you pay higher taxes, right? And I asked, interviewed a lot of people there, and they were all happy to pay the taxes because of the things they got back. So if you'll go to the next slide, what is that extra money used for? I could give you slide after slide, and I won't go through all of these, but just a couple illustrations. Joni and I and our two daughters moved to Copenhagen. I was working there, teaching there for a year. We were there for a few weeks, and we got a letter in the mail from the city of Copenhagen, and it says, in honor and support of raising your family, we will be depositing money into your bank account on a monthly basis. So for each and every month, a couple hundred dollars put into our account because we had children under the age of 18. Then we moved back to the United States. 
Our youngest was going into 10th grade, so it was three years yet before she was going to be 18. And for the next three years, they kept putting money into our bank account, even though we didn't live in Copenhagen, because the idea is we are helping you raise your family. We kept writing them and telling them stop, but they wouldn't. <laughs> I love this. I mean, this is fun if you're, if you're studying, and I'm in that business, so I care about uh, people getting degrees and learning. Uh, all education is free at any single level you can think of. So although we give education free in the U.S. until you're in 12th grade, they give education free always. So if you're going to medical school, free. Law school, free. Graduate school, free. You're in a job, you want to retrain, get another degree, go back, free. It's, it's paid for with this extra money. Uh, another one I like, uh, they have decided that they will meet a goal, and the goal is that every citizen in Copenhagen will live, live within a 15-minute walk of train stop, of a park, and of water. So they've achieved the uh, parks and the water, and the train stops will be achieved next year when they finish a new line they're putting in. Okay, at this point, we're gonna, I want to give you a, a more visceral feel for the difference between a market city and a people city, sticking with this Chicago-Copenhagen comparison. So I'm going to do it with photos, and we're going to cut the lights so you can better see. And then we're going to work through these, and I'll just describe them a little bit. Um, because photos work best by looking kind of at urban design, I'm going to focus on that a bit. But keep in mind, these illustrate the differences between market and people cities. Okay, so first slide will be of downtown Chicago, just one of our main streets there. Insofar as you can see it, what I want you to notice is the, the amount of space given for cars versus the amount of space given for people to just walk or bike, right? It's overwhelmingly devoted to cars. Now, that we, we wouldn't think twice about that because that's what we're used to. Here's the same kind of center street in Copenhagen. No cars. If you can see, on the one side over here are lots of bikes because in, when you get right into the core of the city, um, not only you don't drive, but you'd also have to leave your bikes and you walk. Um, and I want to keep in mind this too. Copenhagen was a market city that became a people city. So after we look at these slides, we'll talk about why they changed. Okay, next slide. So speaking, speaking of bikes, in market cities, we don't care much about bike lanes because we're not going to put a lot of money into it. So we do the easiest way possible, which is to paint two white lines. And I guess for some reason, if you paint the bike figure in there, then that does make it a bike lane. Now, the problem here, just terrible, terrible design, which if you gave any thought to people at all, you wouldn't do this. Moving cars become parked cars, parked cars become moving cars, and they do it by crossing the bike lane, therefore creating a death trap and people die. I don't understand how anybody would think this is okay, but this is the predominant thing you'll see in our city. How about in Copenhagen? Given a lot of thought to how you make it safe and fun to ride your bike through the city, what you do is you create a wedding cake feature. So you have one level which is for walking, another level that's for biking, and another level that is for vehicles. And you protect, you cut off any access to the bike and to the walking. So you can see there the safety of these bikers. They also make them wide enough that you can be three bikers to the side talking to each other. In, in Copenhagen, the most common way that people get to work in school is they bike. It's more, more common than anything. The least common way is that they get in a vehicle. Only 9% of people use a car of their own. Now, uh, it's interesting, like, because 
just like Chicago, it snows there. Do people bike when it snows? Yes. The first thing they do is they have these special machines that plow the bike lanes, and they later get to the uh, lanes for the cars. Okay. Let's look back to Chicago here. We'll look at bridges, designing bridges. Notice how many people want to cross this bridge and how little room they're given. And they're sort of like sandwiched in like cattle there. And you give most of the room to the few cars that happen to be wanting to use it. Again, you're focused on the market as opposed to people. Let's look at bridges in Copenhagen. As they've changed, the bridges they build look more and more like this. There's nothing to do with moving vehicles, everything to do with people. In this case, their bikes and themselves. The next example is one of their newer ones where they do these two levels, one level for bikes, one level for walking. Okay, next. Public transportation is, a, 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 I think it's way understudied as a social justice issue, giving people access to freedom to move through a city. In, 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 in Chicago, we have one of the more extensive systems in the country, but the system is perfectly designed to do two things and only two things. One is to bring everybody to one place, the center of the market, downtown, and the other is actually, and I've been studying this, uh, the lines are actually placed in ways to separate peoples, usually by racial group, and keep them separate. Uh, and so I can see like when Mayor Daley, the previous, the first Mayor Daley, the, he actually would move lines to make sure they would cut right in the center of where a white and black neighborhood was. He didn't want it in the middle, he wanted it to separate them. So you see that over and over. So that's, again, when you're focusing on the market, you can get a, something like this. What would be better? And I see this every once in a while proposed, is that if you're going to have a spoke system, you also have to have a hub and rims that connect the lines outside of the downtown. That's, this, is, this system here is Copenhagen's. It's a larger view because it's showing all the suburbs too, so the lines that go way off on their own, those are all suburbs. Each suburb gets one stop. But where you see the circle line and all the other mishmash of stuff, that is the city itself, designed to get people everywhere. Amazing thing is, they didn't even have uh, uh, train lines for the city until 1992. So they've built all of this since that time. Okay. Next slide, please. All right. If you lived in Chicago in a residential neighborhood, you know this scene. Of course, it's the snow, but what I really want you to see is that given a, a road of, of this narrowness, we give two of the lanes over for parking and one for a car to move through, so we make one ways. Now, if you go to Copenhagen, you'll see the same thing because of their old market city design. Uh, there they are, exact same thing, right? Cars parked on both sides and just enough room for a car to move through. But, let me show you the rest of the street. The middle third of these streets don't allow parking, don't allow moving vehicles. Therefore, the residents of that street to have a common space together. And they get to determine what it is they want, and the city comes in and puts it in for them. In this one, they wanted places to sit and to eat, and they have a sandbox and some other things. Okay? About where we live. Common that you'll see through the city is that we design buildings like this. These might be apartments, they might be residences. If you've got a lot of money, you can live in one of these towers. Um, what I find interesting is that even though it's downtown, a third of those towers, the bottom third is given to parking. And then you get out and get in the tube that takes you up to where you live. So you don't really have to interact with anybody. All right? 
The way they build now in, in Copenhagen, since they've become a people city, is always with the thought of how do we encourage people to interact. So on this building, on the outside, you can see the space given. It's got a canal by it. They've designed it so you can use that canal. They put places to sit and such. What's really interesting to me is what it looks like on the inside of this building. You have specific space, all of the middle space, and you'll see this building after building there, designed for people to be able to interact. Notice they've given incredible attention to the width of the thing people are going to sit on, the height, the, all the glass that's there, and the jutting out of different parts, and it's all for this design of having people be able to interact with their inside or outside. In fact, Copenhagen has even come down through studies to know the exact perfect height for a people city building, and it is five stories plus or minus one. Because if you go higher than that, people no longer interact with the street. They only exist in their building. So they usually don't go higher than that. Okay, a couple more here now. Last thing I want to point out with these photos. Parks, public spaces matter a lot. We have this incredible spectacle of Millennium Park now in Chicago. Beautiful. Notice, of course, where it is, at the center, at the market. It draws in millions of tourists, and that's partly why it's there. It is, it is incredible, and I'm sure if you've spent any time here, you've gone there. Even when we lived in Houston, we would come and vacation here and go there just to see it. But a hallmark of market cities is that you have inequality. So you can see this in parks, right? Here's a neighborhood park. You'll find some nice neighborhood parks. You'll find some like this. I, I note that there's one duck left. I'm glad to see that they have one duck. <laughs> okay. Now, Copenhagen gives a lot of attention to how do you get people to use public space so that they'll interact with each other. So one is this. Despite being a very cold place, they have public swimming, and they've actually built a swimming pool with diving and everything right in their harbor because they've cleaned up their water so much that it's safe to do so. Another, you'll find things like this, just weird designs that have been studied a lot, even down to the color that they use, because it, they find out this attracts children, which attracts their parents. And you even make it slightly dangerous so that parents will have to be there and be part of the process of learning safety. Yes. Next slide is another example of what you might find when you walk through the city. Suddenly here, there's just some little trampolines embedded into, this, into the sidewalk. Uh, and when you study this, what they found is these little things will cause families to spend about 20 to 25 minutes more together using the city, just because there's something to do together. So they keep putting in more and more of these. Now, the ultimate point is this. In, in this people cities, what they're trying to do is say, if you design a city for people to interact, will they? turns out they will. They'll actually interact more, and when they do interact more, they express greater satisfaction with life. It turns out they're much healthier, which reduces health care costs, and it turns out they live longer. So if you've ever heard happiest people on earth, you know that's usually Copenhagen, Denmark, because they give attention to this. Okay, one last comparison between market and people cities. We've got to go back to crime where we started. So let's look at the crime rate, or the murder rate in this case, in Chicago and Copenhagen. So in Chicago, out of every 100,000 people, in any given year, 24 will be murdered. So 24 out of every 100,000. Compared to Copenhagen, less than 1 out of 100,000. So you're about at least 25 times more likely to lose your life here than there. 
by murder. But again, the hallmark of a market city is inequality within the city. This is a, a graph trying to show that difference. This is murder rates by neighborhood or by area. And we even have a little line pointing to where we are right there. Turns out you are at least 10 times more likely to be murdered if you live in the south side or the west side than if you live on the north side. Vast inequalities and somehow as a city we just okay with that. Okay, I told you that Copenhagen was a market city that's done this crazy transformation to become a people city and why. And it gets traced back to this man named Jan Gell, who's a